Children's Church. It is a blessing to be able to sing. It is a blessing to be able to open God's Word and study it. And as we right now gather around His Word, I want to ask us to stop one more time and ask for God's clear involvement as we um, examine the scriptures today. Would you bow with me in prayer, please, one more time? Loving Father, we come to you with a request this day that those who would lack wisdom, those that would lack that would come to you, and that would be all of us. And so I, on behalf of these good folks listening here, those good folks listening through the radio, those that might listen sometime in the future to this message, that wisdom would come and that wisdom from the Holy Spirit would be what would make all the difference in our time as we gather around your word. Would you please bless now? We love you and thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are some events that we go through in life that cause our emotions to peak. Oftentimes, maybe we'll have an emotional experience every once in a while, but sometimes we will go through something and it causes our emotions, whichever way you are bent, to peak, to go to its maximum amount. There's no doubt in my mind that one of those times that comes up across the board with so many people is when there's an automobile accident. When you have an automobile accident, there are emotions that will come in. It might lead to tears, might lead to anger, might lead to blame. It might lead to um, a, a tendency in the future to want to get behind the wheel of a car. And when you have two drivers of an automobile accident, oftentimes there are going to be a variety of emotions. And there's also a variety of sides as to which happened. I would suggest to us that when you have two people that are involved, they're seeing it two different ways. And so when a police officer comes on the scene and he's looking at what took place, he's going to hear one thing from one driver and something different from another. And so what does a police officer look for at a time like that? He looks for someone who witnessed the accident. And that can be very, very helpful. Unless you have more than one witness. Now, more than one witness would be good, but most of us are familiar with this illustration that if there's more than one witness in two different places, then they possibly saw two different things. I want to suggest to us today that as we look at our passage of Scripture, that there are individuals that would look at this and they would view it in different ways. Let me go ahead and give you somewhat of a takeaway from the message. What I want for us to get from the, our time together is I want for this study to drive us to have a greater love and a greater appreciation for God's grace and mercy. I know that's a big picture, but I, that's my, I would love for that. No matter where you at, are at in life, if you would have a greater appreciation for God's grace and mercy. And some are going to look at it differently. Some have been saved just for a short time. They've been following Christ. Some have been um, a believer uh, for many, many years. There are some who maybe have not made that decision to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There might be some hearing this that have not made that decision, the most important decision that you could ever make. And so I want to ask you all to lean in as we gather around our text and see how you would approach this. All that to bring us to our text, Ephesians chapter 2. If you're not already there, please, do Ephes- please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. If you do not have a Bible with you, um, there's a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Please, um, you can find Ephesians in that. And if you do not have a Bible of your own, please feel free to take that Bible and keep that. We want everybody that's been to Calvary to have a Bible in their possessions. So that is our gift to you. If you do not have a Bible of your own, you take that Bible in the pew rack and keep it. But everybody, please turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And we are going to jump back into our study that is so exciting And I'm not just saying that because I have to or try to convince you. What we're dealing with today is such an incredible portion of Scripture. Let me review just very, very briefly for those who might be need to brought up to speed as far as what we've covered in chapter 1 of Ephesians. We looked at a doxology in the first half of Ephesians 1, a song of praise to God. The Apostle Paul, while he is under arrest, he's able to sit down and pen this, and he wasn't addressing any specific problem in a church. He wasn't trying to combat something that was uh, a major sin. The Apostle Paul is able to write the book of Ephesians to, I think, a group of believers in the area of Ephesus, multiple churches. This was a cyclical letter. And he could write this as an overflow of what he had experienced in the love of God. And so verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1 give us this hymn of praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We sang that a number of times when we reviewed that. And then in the second half of the book, verses 15 through 23, we find a prayer. A prayer that involves the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, a prayer that involves exactly what Paul was hoping believers would grab a hold of, that their eyes would be opened to the riches and to the power and to the promises of our God. So he's gotten through that in the first chapter. And now we get to come across what is not only two of the most loved verses in the Bible, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, I know, I've heard folks say that is their favorite portion of Scripture in the Bible. There are some that have bought huge billboards to advertise to the world, and they've chosen two of these verses, verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, to put it on that billboard. And then we also are going to come across two of the most amazing words in the Bible. And that's my humble opinion, and that's the title of the message today. Two amazing words But in order for us to understand these two amazing words, we've got to see a contrast. Verses 1 through 3, we find something very specific. It'll be very clear, I hope. And then we find those two amazing words. And then in the end of our passage we're studying today, it will be a stark difference than the first three verses. So let's go ahead and begin. I'll I'll read starting in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body 
and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, let's stop right there. And if you're getting a little bit discouraged just reading those words and stopping right there, that's okay. He's painting a very intentional picture here. And he lists something right at the beginning. beginning. He talks about our trespasses and our sins. And it's important for us, for us to understand that these are two different things. The word trespass means a false step. And we're all familiar with no trespassing. You can see the sign on the screen there. Uh, trespassers will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. That's something that I think is clever. But our God very much so puts in the text here the word trespasses. We're all familiar with what this means. The idea is, is that we are sinners by choice. You need to understand that. Everyone chooses to be a sinner. So we are um, dead in our trespasses and then also in our other, in our sins, the Bible says here. This word sins is uh, very helpful for us also. The, sin act, the word sin actually means missing the mark. It comes from an old British archery contest where they would have a competition and they would put a hoop up on a pole and these men would shoot their arrows. And if one missed, they were actually called a sinner. This traces back a long time ago. And if one missed, they likely had to treat the others to uh, the drinks at that point. If you missed the mark, then you were a sinner. And when you and I think of God's holiness, we sing about it on a regular basis. And we come across it throughout the scriptures, God's holiness and this requirement. We understand that this is an impossible mark to hit. We cannot hit it at all. I love the track that we, we purchased several of these recently. It's called, uh, May I Ask You a Question? And even in our evangelism training time we had last year, uh, we were uh, challenged to take these and use them. Most tracks have a whole lot of similarities if they're a good track. They're going to have the gospel clearly presented. This is one of the few tracks that I've seen that has this wonderful idea of missing the mark. And it talks about supposing you and I were trying to throw a rock to the North Pole. It couldn't be done. If you were to take a rock and I were to take a rock and to throw it, now maybe you would come closer than I would to the North Pole, or maybe I would come closer to you. But it's an impossible target to hit. Neither one of our rocks would make it all the way to the North Pole. And that's the idea with this word sin. We are sinners by nature. It's an impossible spot to hit. And even though outwardly we look very much alive, inside we are cut off from life because we have been cut off from God. Sin is falling short of the glory of God. Of God, So we are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice. That's the idea in these two words that are here. And then I'm not sure if you picked up on the theme in the first three verses. I could spend a whole sermon on this. We'll just touch on it briefly. But it referenced there regarding the sin and what we face. It referenced three key enemies. Did you see what they were? It was the world and the devil and the flesh. Some of you have taken on the challenge to read through the screw tape letters 
And you will see all three of these are referenced. And you'll see in that wonderful book where we get an insight to very possibly how the devil might work to tempt us or trip us up. The world, the devil, and the flesh all come up. And whether we know it or not, all of us at one time were actually loyal to the world and the devil and the flesh. And we don't say that out loud. Nobody puts that as the flag that's on the pole in their front yard. I'm loyal to the devil or I'm loyal to myself or loyal to the world. Let's talk about these briefly. The world is actually talking about a world system. This is a value system that the world has that's been created by and is energized by the devil. That's the world system, this fallen world that we live in. As we study our enemy, and it's important to do that, and when we get to the end of the book of Ephesians, we'll see all kinds um, of helpful tips for us. As we study our enemy, we recognize that one of the best tools of the devil is he is this. He is a master counterfeiter. He can counterfeit anything that God does. And perhaps you've recognized some of that. I think one of the most masterful jobs that he's done in counterfeiting is that the devil has taken people and he's made them look pretty good sometimes. The devil has taken people that are not Christians and he's made them um, feel good about themselves by volunteering in an organization or by giving finances to some kind of a group. He's made them feel good by comparing themselves to somebody else. And I can always find somebody else worse than me. You can always find somebody else worse than you. The devil is a master counterfeiter. He gets people to say, well, you know, I'm really not all that bad. Because I know this guy down the street. And that guy, he's that bad. Yeah, he's probably going to hell. But compared to him, I'm probably not. The devil is a master counterfeiter. This idea of the world system. And then the devil himself. And this does not mean that Satan is personally at work in the life of each believer. Don't get that idea. He is a created being. He cannot be all, in all places at all times. But he does have an incredible number of demons that are working on his behalf. And he has had an incredible influence in the world that we live in. And so very much so, our enemies are the world and the devil, and then also the flesh. Those that do not know Jesus Christ, they struggle, they, 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 they just are completely thinking of their flesh just about at all times. And for those who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ, listen, there is still this pull. There's a struggle with Jeremy Lazelle when it comes to my flesh. And there is coming a day where I will not have that anymore, but in this world that has been um, incredibly corrupted by the devil, this refers to the fallen nature which we were born with. Verse three there said, we were by nature children of wrath. And so please understand as we go into this warfare that there is a major difference between the prince of peace and the prince of the power of the air. You see, our God has written a story and at this point in the story, he has allowed Satan to rule over this 
present world. It does not mean that God is not sovereign, but it just means at this point in the story, that is where God is at. Now, there might be some of you that have plans today and have to get up and go. I just want to encourage you, if you've got to leave in the next few minutes, we have painted a very dark picture of you and me and mankind. So you need to pick up the CD if you're gonna miss the second half of this because listen, it gets amazing. It gets incredible here very soon. So if you miss the second half of this message, make sure in some way, maybe go online. We've painted a very, very dark picture. What we have seen is the Apostle Paul's estimate of every man without God. This is what he is saying every man is. He paints this as the universal human condition. I hope you're getting the picture. Let me give one more illustration um, if, if you're not quite getting it yet. Let's say that we walked about four doors down to the south and went into the funeral home that is just to the south of us. And let's say there was a dead corpse, a body that had been taken down there and it's uh, getting prepared for an upcoming funeral. And we were to go in there and to see that. And as we walked in and this dead corpse was in there and nobody else was around, imagine if you will, if you went in that room with that corpse and you tried to make it come back alive. What might we try? Maybe we'd make some noise, right? Clap our hands. You know, try to, try to shake it. Maybe we would turn the temperature up in the room, try to warm that dead body up in some way. Perhaps we would bang a drum. Let's get some loud music and bang that in there. No matter how many times we would try, if there was a dead corpse there, there is nothing that you and I can do to stimulate that dead corpse to come back to life in a very similar way. And here's the picture that we find in the first three verses. In a very similar way, there is nothing that man or woman could do for themselves for their spiritually dead state. Uh, One commentator said this, this means we are in a world that is one vast graveyard filled with people who are dead while they live. Some of us have seen uh, movies where they will have someone on death row and as they are making that march to go to uh, maybe the execution chamber, to the electric chair, whatever it might be, There's a saying that gets said sometimes, that is a dead man walking. And that's the idea, a dead man walking. There is nothing that we can do for this. Okay, are you ready for this? If you didn't have any good news yet today, I'm glad you came today. Look with me at the beginning of verse four, where it says the two most wonderful words. It says, but God. These are the two most wonderful words because this incredibly dark picture was there. The Apostle Paul paints it. God, if you will, paints this dark, dark picture and we see that. And then we find the words, but God. We started out the passage by it saying, and you. And now we come to where it says, but God. Let's read four through seven. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved. Please contain your applause. Let's go on. Verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. Okay, so imagine verses 1 through 3, this black canvas that God has painted. It cannot get any more black, any darker, any more grim than what God has made it. And then imagine our beautiful God in his creativity taking bright yellow on that black canvas and just splashing it across that black canvas. And he doesn't finish there because then he takes a beautiful blue and he marks it across that black canvas. And then he takes a lovely green and puts it across that black canvas. He is describing the work that he has done. All these colors come into play as we have already been painted that incredibly incredibly pitch black scene i was reminded of the um, very popular saga star wars there's a new star wars movie coming out and some are excited about that and as i have looked at the movie star wars i see some similarities because they paint this incredibly grim picture oftentimes I can remember vividly um, one of the star wars movies they will have different characters in three different places And this one here is in a fight, a lightsaber fight. And they're starting to lose, and it looks like they're about to lose the entire thing. Then they cut to the next scene, and these people here are trying to get the defenses down so that they can get in and make an attack. And they're about to lose all of that. And this one over here is going through something, and they're about to get caught or about to die. And they're very intentional about painting as grim of a picture as can be painted. And they're so smart the music they use throughout it just makes you feel like all hope is lost and then the day is saved we find here in verse 5 that the bible says that we are and we've already sang about this this morning we are alive with christ our sins had made us spiritually dead and in case you need the reminder, I mean, as, as we read these verses, specifically those right there, didn't it seem like the Apostle Paul was being a bit repetitive? He kept saying, in Christ and him and he and Christ. He kept saying it. In case you're not getting the picture, in case you're missing it, Christ is right in the middle of this. And oh, by the way, Christ is the one responsible. And you, you're alive in Christ. It comes up again and again. We ask the question, who is it that overcame death? The resurrected Christ. And because of this, God allows us to share in his life. Verse 6 says there, raised us up and seated us with him. And even though we live on an earth where Satan reigns, we live with Christ as a part of his kingdom And I mentioned earlier, someday it will fully be Christ's kingdom, but right now we still have a battle that's going on. And then verse seven there, it says, show the riches and kindness towards us in Christ. That word show actually means this. It means to put on display. A good picture of what that word means is a trophy. I asked one of our folks to bring in a trophy today i figured they would have one i did not know they'd bring in a trophy with a big old fish 
on top of it. But they did. And somebody won. This is, uh, uh, anyway, first annual, it says, and it's a fishing competition, and there's a big trophy. It's clearly good enough to keep for several years. Someone's proud of this. Someone went out, caught some fish or a fish, got a trophy for it, and we keep this on display because that's something that we're proud of. That's something that we want to remember. Even more so, that's something that we want other people to be able to see. This word show here, that's the idea. The idea is that we are a trophy, and this is going to be a challenge for some of you. Let me take us back. I mentioned that some are going to hear this, these verses, and they're going to have one view of it. Right here might be one view that some of you have. It might be that you are supposed to be something that is God's display. We are on display to the universe as what? What are we talking about here? We are on display to the universe as a demonstration of God's grace. That's what you are. That's how your neighbors and your family are supposed to see God's grace because you are a trophy of what God can do with someone who is completely dead. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. Greg mentioned our uh, fast car event coming up this Saturday, and we're glad for that. I mentioned it to the, the kids Wednesday night, and somebody piped up right away and said, I've got a trophy from that, from before. And then they said, my dad's got a first place trophy from that race event. We hope you adults come out. It's a great time. The kids get so into it, and the adults get into it too. We give out trophies. Maybe this is your application. Maybe you're a child of God. You've accepted Christ as your Savior. But what kind of a trophy are you? How do you look from those that are around you when you are on display to the universe? And as one commentator says, to the angels. The angels are looking on at us. Verses 5 and 6 gives a description. It says you were dead, and then you were raised, and then you were seated. We could do a whole study on that. And then verse 7 says, in the ages to come, this is a great reminder, I'll have you fill in the blank here, that this world is not our home, we're just, uh, what, passing through. You've got, you got to hold on to that sometimes, right? I know I do. I need to hold on to that. And that's why we're reminded of this. And then let's look at our final verses, starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is my personal preference as I am teaching, whether it be from the pulpit or in a classroom, to stay out of politics as much as I can. Having said all of that, let me go ahead and give an illustration that I think makes my point here. After this last presidential election quite some time back, there was a lot of traction in the news and a whole lot of talk that went on. And as the president was having one of the balls that he would have and they would go and celebrate and dance, it's amazing all the different commentary that takes place, all the different buzz and talk. 
And one of the points that took place after the last presidential election was on the song that the president was going to have played while he danced with his wife, saying how much it represented his run for the presidency and how much it represented who he was. And it just was a one, I don't know if anybody knows what I'm talking about. But in a specific song at a ball, our president chose this one to be played to dance with his wife. He played the song by Frank Sinatra, I Did It, What? My Way. I can remember that and the talk about it. And yeah, he did. Boy, oh boy, he did. I did it my way. And everybody in our country and maybe across the world saw that message. I want to suggest to us today that there is not a one in this world that will be in fellowship with God forever that will be able at all to say, I choose for my theme song, I did it my way. Not at all. Not at all. If you've deceived yourself into that in some way that you think you can get your way to heaven, you were good enough, you will not be singing at all after our time in this present world. No, our theme song will not be I did it my way, but instead I think we will echo something like I once was lost, but now am found. It is by grace. You see, Christ rescued me. Christ chased me. Christ saved me. He redeemed me. He found us. He saved us. And he did all of this because he was rich in mercy. That's why. His incredible love, which is all throughout this passage. So if, you, if I can just comment here a little bit. It is not God sitting up in heaven and looking down and, and observing that one there in that city, and God saying, oh my, that's a good woman there. I will choose that one to be in my family. It's not God looking down and saying, look at that, look at that one there and the amount of good that they do. I'm going to choose them to be in my family. There is none of that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is only because of the love of God that you and I are able to experience his forgiveness and his mercy. And it's easier to be thankful for some of God, God's attributes more than others. I think as we study through them, we're thankful for all of them equally. Some love his holiness more. Some can get behind God's love a whole lot more. Most folks don't appreciate as much God's justice. I think if you don't already, you will someday. You'll appreciate God's justice. Think about it. If you get pulled over by a police officer you don't, and you've done something wrong, you don't ask for justice, do you? No, you don't. What do you ask for? You ask for mercy. Give me mercy. I don't want to face the consequences that, ha- that are coming my way. And so we see very clearly here that we should be thankful, and this is all because of God's love. Verses 8 and 9 says, not of yourselves. Let me pull in just one more illustration from the scriptures. If I can take us to that Old Testament story, I'll just reference it, the story of Gideon. And if you can remember that story of Gideon and how God's people were being oppressed and God appears to him and God says, I'm going to save my people and you're going to lead them, Gideon. We've got quite a bit of work ahead of us. And so Gideon goes and sees what he's been dealt, 32,000 soldiers. Okay, 
all right, God, I can, I can see it. I can see this smaller group of soldiers, 32,000, winning the battle, winning the war. I can see it. And God says, wait a second, wait a second. It's not going to do. We're going to cut it down. God cuts that number down to 10,000 soldiers. And I don't know what kind of palpitations were going on with Gideon when that took place. And he's thinking, okay, but you better give me the battle plans, God. You better do something incredible here with 10,000. And God puts a stop to it and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, and reduces it down to how many? How many was it? It was 300. 300. What's going on here? Why would God do that? It applies to what we're talking about here in Ephesians 2. You see, when this number is so big, and they go, and they win like God said they would win, God knows man. He knows that our bent is to step up and say, who did it? Our, our, our bent is to say, I did it. The 32,000, they did it. Holy smokes, put their name on the wall. Let's give them a holiday. The 10,000, they were able to do it. And I've heard, I've heard people teach on that story and say these must have been the most incredible soldiers there were. I mean, these were the special forces. I don't, I don't see that. I see that God says, I know the people and they will have no place to boast. He knows you. And he does not want to give you any place to boast. Verse 9, so that no one may boast. And verse 8 makes it clear that the good works do not earn our favor with God. And so why are they there? If the good works that we do are not there to earn God's favor, then what is the role of our good works? Well, let me give you just a few things, just really quick. In one of the ABF groups, they're going to talk about this, I believe. Really quick, here are some purposes of the good works. First of all, to bring glory to God. Second, to prove the authenticity of the gospel. Third, to bring God's love, loving touch to people. And fourth, to promote peace in our churches and in our society. You see, your good works do not save you, but God has a definite role for them. And we're almost out of time. And as I went through what we're going to talk about, I came across other teachers that spent a whole sermon, a whole chapter of a commentary just talking about verse 10. Let's talk about verse 10. I won't give you a whole nother sermon, but perhaps as you are viewing this, you will be the witness that is seeing what is happening here from these verses as far as how you approach it. What does verse 10 say? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. One more illustration for us today. Because when we see this word workmanship that is here, there is a very specific picture that is, is trying to come across. And the idea is of a poem, of poetry. We are God, the God who made all things, the God who made you, the God that does everything. You, if you're a follower of his, you are his workmanship, you are his poetry, his poem. Now, when I thought of poetry with this, I tried to think of some of the greats. I did a little bit of research 
I tried to look up who were the greatest poets that we have seen across the years. And I came across some of the poems by Emily Dickinson. Maybe some of you love Dickinson. I came across Robert Frost, Edgar Allan Poe. And I read some of the poetry that these have put together. And then there was one more poet that I considered. His name's Jeremy. He can rhyme. We've already been reminded a couple times today that Valentine's Day is coming up, and so I did my best with a poem here. It goes like this. Roses are red, and violets are blue, and my captivating, captivating love is just for you. All right. If we're going to have the world vote, and we pull in Dickinson, and we pull in Frost, and we pull in Poe, and we pull in Lazelle, who wins as far as the beauty of their poetry? I'm not sure who wins, but I'm confident of who gets fourth place, okay? Lazelle gets fourth place. That wasn't that good. I did make up just one word, one word I made up in that poem there. I would not win. Verse 10 says that you, if you're a follower of God, are his workmanship. The idea is that we are a poem of God. This is a picture that demonstrates, don't tune out, this is a picture that demonstrates how God displays his creativity in this world. So have you seen, have you seen the full picture from verses 1 through 10 here? 1 through 3, as dark as it gets, Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son so that we could have what follows. Not only so we could have mercy and grace and experience God's love, but verse 10, so that you could be a poem of his, so that you could be his workmanship. Listen, brothers and sisters, I know you're looking forward to heaven, as am I. But in this present world, we are to become the expression of God to the world around us. And what's beautiful about it is the same, don't, don't, this, this is great. The same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead, the same power that brought that body back to life and helped him conquer death and conquer sin and conquer hell and conquer Satan. The same power that did all of that is the exact same power that works in you to be his workmanship. Same power. You're not dependent upon yourself. It is such a beautiful picture that you can walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. How? Because once you got saved, you just were all that? No. It's because there's a power that will work in you that raised God the Son from the dead, the same power. I've asked you to look at these 10 verses with a specific view. And yours might be different than yours. What kind of view are you looking at this with? Or let me ask the question, what can you do? What are you and I to do with this passage? Well, some might be viewing it in this way. Some might need to ask this question. Where am I at in these verses? 
Am I in verses 1 through 3? Dead. No hope. Or am I in the second half? Alive in Christ. And very clearly, the question you need to ask is the same question the Philippian jailer asks. What must I do to be saved? I've been so excited about this day, this very day, and approaching this portion of Scripture and with the specific, specific individuals that would be here to hear it. And I've already prayed for you, for those that might be listening over the radio, for those that might hear it in the future. There comes a point where you have to move, where you need to move from verses 1 through 3 to verses 5 through 8, being alive in Christ. Have you accepted Christ as your Savior? And then if you have done that, ask yourself this question, how do I look All right, if I'm a shiny trophy or if I'm a beautiful poem, how do I look? What kind of a poem am I for God to those that are looking on? Are you a good representation of what God can do with a submitted life? Or are you one, and this would be a whole other sermon, are you one who's been saved by grace, but you insist on getting your satisfaction in life on going back to the flesh, the devil, and the world because there are many believers who do not mature to the point where they're no longer seeking happiness in those things. What do you look like? How can you be a beautiful picture of what God wants you to be, be a great display to the universe of God's grace? Well, you can make it your life's goal to learn about God and to learn about his purpose. And what he has done for you is he puts the incredible power in you to demonstrate kindness. God puts within you the power to demonstrate patience. And the world outside will look on and they'll say, man, oh man, I don't get that. You can be a trophy of God's grace by demonstrating gentleness and love and joy. Demonstrate joy. Maybe you struggle with one of these or more of these. Don't struggle with joy. Demonstrate joy. Don't walk around like you're sad all the time if you've been saved by grace. God puts within you the ability to produce these fruit and it has already been my prayer and I'm going to ask us to bow in just a second and pray that you will be a masterpiece of what God wants you to be. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we have learned about you today and what you have done. We have focused on your son, the center of this passage that is here. And we praise you for it. God, you you are so good to us. And we know we don't deserve it. Would you allow anyone that might be hearing this message today that's not called on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, that they would do that, to call out for forgiveness today, to see that this is the only way to have true joy and peace in this world. And we thank you that we can sing a doxology about that and that we can pray about that, but also that we can get busy once you save us. And Father, I would pray right now that individuals would recognize that someone is watching them. Every one of us, there is someone 
who is observing our lives, watching how we respond when we go through a fiery time, watching how we respond when we go through a long length of time. And I thank you, God, that we are able to be a reflection of your beauty and your grace in this world. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I'm going to ask Anna to play through a stanza on the piano. I want you to pray. If you're not saved today, would you just, if God is pulling you in, say, God, save me. Forgive me of my sins. I want to be yours. Maybe you might pray about what you look like to others that are around you. Pray to God. Ask him to make you a beautiful, beautiful poem or trophy for others to see.